I've always wondered, what do people in Russia eat at home? Dara Goldstein knows. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Dara Goldstein. She is the Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies at Williams College. She is the founding editor of Gastronomica, and she is a curator, a writer, editor, and teacher. Welcome, Dara. I'm so glad to be here, Liz. It is very nice to see you right now. So, <laughs> yeah, I sort of wish I were in some of that New Orleans warmth. <laughs> well, that's true. It is pretty warm here. So, I want to ask you first about your new book, Beyond the North Wind. So, what motivated you to write such a personal book about Russia and the Russian food? To be completely honest, it wasn't my idea. So in 1983, I published my very first cookbook, which in its first edition was called Alarus, a cookbook of Russian hospitality. That's when I emerged into the culinary world, you could say. And it really grew out of my experience with Russian literature, with living in the Soviet Union, and trying to reconcile the state of food during Soviet times with what I had been reading about the haute cuisine of the 19th century and all these lavish dishes and grand feasts and everything else. And the book is still in print as A Taste of Russia. And I felt that, you know, I've written about Russian food over the years, but I had written my Russian cookbook. But my wonderful editor at Tensby, Jenny Wapner, who had just been my editor for my previous cookbook, Fire and Ice, mm -hmm. which is about Nordic cooking, mm -hmm. said she really wanted me to write another Russian cookbook. And I burst out laughing and basically said, well, I've been there. I've done that. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I realized that it had been almost 40 years since my first book had come out. The Soviet Union no longer existed. I can't believe been... we're that old. <laughs> I know. I'm trying not to think about it. Maybe my math is off. That's always possible. <laughs> but I'd been back so many times and so much had changed. And I realized that that book, which is still quite wonderful, the original one I wrote, mm -hmm. doesn't really describe what I now consider Russian food. And I wanted to get at what was really elemental, like the, the sort of quintessential tastes of Russia that brought me back to how people have been eating for many years. I mean, thousands of years, not just a few. So that was the impetus. Well, do you think that that, that Old cuisine of, of Russia is gone? Is that something that has been lost because of the Soviet Union? Well, it was still uh, present during, some of it was still present. I mean, you had beef stroganoff, mm -hmm. 
you had a lot of fancified dishes and there are Soviet counterparts. So something like chicken Kiev, for instance, that we think of as, as pretty grand and it's very rich because you take chicken breasts and you stuff them with butter mm -hmm. and you bread them and deep fry them and then you get this amazing spurt of butter when you cut into it. And often it was served when those little, little frilly paper things on right, the, right, right. Then of course the wing tip. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so there was this sense of grand dishes. But a lot of them had died out because, you know, they required a tremendous amount of effort. You didn't have the surf labor in the kitchen. You didn't have access to all the ingredients. So it's not that they died, but I think they were more kept alive in the immigration. Or you had something like the classic Olivier salad, which was very much the brainchild of a French-Belgian chef who was working in Moscow in the 1860s. In the Soviet times, they were no longer adding, you know, hazel hen or pheasant to it. Mm -hmm. And it became what was known as Stalichny Salat, capital salad, which is basically a pyramid of boiled potatoes with canned peas, lots of mayonnaise, uh, sometimes chicken was added. And I adored it, but it was presented really beautifully, but it wasn't exactly haute cuisine. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So there were holdovers, but it wasn't what you really found. And today, if you go to the fanciest restaurants in Moscow, there are a few now that have returned to a sort of traditional Russian cooking with almost a new Russian approach that is like new Nordic. Mm -hmm. But some of the most expensive restaurants are Asian. Sushi, sashimi are all very, very trendy there. Italian, amazing Italian food. Uh, really, any cuisine you might be interested in. What I loved so much about Beyond the North Wind is that I felt like it was food that I could eat at someone's home and not haute cuisine. It was the kind of thing that you would be able to either throw together or you could have prepared ahead like some of the fermented things and then just almost serve it right away without needing lots and lots of layered preparation and all of that. And I like that a lot. Good. I worked hard to strip it down. I mean, in many ways, I think this is my most minimalist cookbook mm -hmm. because I was trying to get into the mindset of Russians living in isolated places who didn't have access to a lot of imported foods. And so what brilliant things did they do with what they had on hand to take basic ingredients that might seem a little dull, like... I mean, I love root vegetables, but they might not have the pizzazz until you start steaming them or roasting them and bringing out their essential sweetness. Or taking something like cucumbers. And one of my favorite recipes in the book is for 20-minute pickles. That when I first tasted them, I was just blown away. Like how I asked the woman, how did you make these pickles? And I felt bad because she said she was opening her last jar of them. And I said, no, you know, not on my account. But she said, no, I just make them in 20 minutes. <laughs> I make them again. And you just take cucumbers and you cut them into spears 
and you macerate them in just a tablespoon of vodka. That's the real trick, plain mm -hmm. vodka. Though I think maybe sometime I'll try a horseradish vodka might be really good. And some salt and garlic. And that's it. And 20 minutes later, they taste as though you have spent hours pickling them. <laughs> and that, that whole fermented concept and pickled thing is, I've only been to Russia once. And uh, I went because I was being part of the, the Moscow Jazz Festival. And they had a jazz and blues tent. And they had all these New Orleans uh, musicians coming. And in between the sets, they wanted somebody to demonstrate and talk about New Orleans food. Oh, and fantastic. So and they, what year was that? That was 2014. And it was a tough time. It was like on again, off again, on again, off again. Finally, we did it. But we were just on, almost on standby, you know. And then I thought, once we're in the air, we're going there. <laughs> and it was, it was great fun. They paired us with the company that was doing all of the catering for that section where you could buy food and stuff like that. But and that company sold what we made. And so we would make these batches that were enormous of gumbo and jambalaya and stuff like that, and then talk about it. We had as many people, if not more, as the musicians brought in to that section of the jazz festival. But the fun part for me was, I mean, obviously that was fun, but we got to go with the, the buyer at the, at the restaurant to the place where we were going to buy the ingredients. And so when we went there, it wasn't very busy. And of course, we were speaking English because the chef who went with me, neither one of us spoke Russian. I mean, we were lucky to learn hello and goodbye and please and thank you, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, so they heard us speaking English and they wanted to know what country we were from. And we said we were American. And they started to come out from behind the counters and pull us over to this counter or that counter and say, eat this, try this, do this, you know, and this, uh, this uh, generous sharing, I want you to appreciate our food kind of thing was just amazing. And this man pulled out pomegranates from his his big pile of pomegranates and started juicing them for me and he was just sure I wouldn't know what a pomegranate was you know and he was giving me pomegranate juice and I was gonna just be blown away which I absolutely was because it was delicious but there were these tiny little strawberries that were almost like the size oh. of the head of a pin and they were so delicious. Oh, sweet. It was just all this stuff that was fun. And, um, and the pickles, people were opening their pickle jars, you know, and they were all fermented, you know, lacto-fermented um, pickles. It was just so wonderful. And so those were the kinds of feelings, that feeling of generosity I got when I read your book that sense of sharing these wonderful flavors with somebody, something that a person was proud of and was happy to have somebody appreciate. That, that was really a nice thing. It just kind of brought up that little nostalgia. I'm so glad it did because that's really what's at the core of being Russian. I know that's not how it appears if you read the newspapers. <laughs> you know, hospitality, generosity. 
but particularly in the immediate post-Soviet years when there was a lot of economic chaos mm-hmm. and people couldn't afford to buy things, they couldn't afford to really regale guests, it was excruciating for them because guests are considered a gift from God. I mean, you do everything for them and you want to share with them and you want to celebrate them. And so it went against the very sense of who they were and made it quite apart from the difficulty of being able to get food on the table. There was a deep sense of, um, it wasn't even humiliation. It was just, um, I'm not thinking of the perfect word now a deep sense of, of having lost their core. Yes, and they probably felt sort of almost, they were abandoning their culture, even though they didn't want to, but because of necessity, yeah. Yeah. That's, oh, that's really, really awful. I did also do one other thing there that was great fun. Um, the man who was our liaison with the restaurant who spoke English, He was one of their marketing people, but they picked him because he spoke English, not because he knew all about food or anything. Anyway, he said, what special thing do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to a tea room where they still use samovars. And he said, oh, I've never been to a place like that. He was about 25. Oh, well, that explains it. Yes, exactly. And so he said, I'm going to have to research this. I'm going to find it and we're going to go. And we did. And everybody in there was like 120 years old. And so it was a really old place. And so the waitress came and talked to us and everything. And then he explained to her that we were from America and that I was particularly interested in samovars and whatever. And so out comes this 120-year-old man, (laughs) and he's carrying a samovar with him on a cart, and he brings out little stools for us so that we can stand on the stool. He takes off the top so we can see how it works. It has coals in the center of it. And oh, I, so they really were doing it the old-fashioned way. Doing it the old-fashioned way. I mean, the man who did the research to find the right place said, "I'm going to go as far back as I can. You know, not just take you to a place that has." Yeah, that's fantastic because most of the tea rooms that try and uh, capture that old-fashioned spirit are using electric samovars because you know when you put the coals in, uh-huh. there are fumes. Um, uh-huh. So if you're sitting in an environment inside, generally Russians who want to use the old-fashioned samovars will, will fire them outside so that the fumes aren't contained in the room. So that's pretty amazing. This, this one, I, it may have been that all of the other ones in the room were electric, but he brought out this one for us. Uh, and so we had the little teapot on top and everything. I mean... We had a wonderful time. And then, of course, they brought out every conceivable kind of sweet goodie for us to have. And um, until... And jam, I hope, the little bowls full of very liquidy jam. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And that sort of fermented butter. Uh, mm-hmm. we had cultured. That. Cultured yeah. butter. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
it was um, it was really a wonderful experience. And I think this man was he was scolding the the Russian man who had taken us there to say, I can't believe you don't know about this, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and he was, he was a young man and this was not his thing, obviously, but it was- Maybe it, maybe it became his maybe thing. Maybe so. He said he was going to bring other visitors there once that he had experienced that. And we had, as I say, we had a really wonderful time and and so all of those memories came back because I, the hospitality that we received was just remarkable and it was all very personal it wasn't like government kind of hospitality it was yeah. uh, like real <laughs> real hospitality so it was it was really great fun um so your book is really wonderful and I think people really need to read it. But I want to ask you about your career too and how you sort of got to this because I do believe that very often, especially starting out in academia and everything, there's a more formal kind of publication that starts out. And then as you mature and, and have more and more experiences, you finally come to a, a sense of this is what the real heart of the people is as opposed to this kind of formula and a more formalized kind of thing. Did you experience? As you yourself has experienced, have experienced. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Which is why we understand each other so well. Well, I have to say that um, when I entered graduate school, it was a long time ago. It was even longer ago than my first book came out. <laughs> it was 1974 at Stanford and I was in uh, Slavic languages and literatures and I wanted to write my dissertation on food in Russian literature because I was so enthralled by the descriptions. And to me, the food was used to characterize the different characters in the books. It really told me a lot about society. You know, it wasn't just going to be straight scene setting mm -hmm. um, as a literary device. Yes. And my professors told me that that was not a serious topic and that I was not a serious person, basically. <laughs> and I, I didn't want to leave graduate school. I mean, I, I loved Russian literature, so I thought, okay, I will do a more traditional dissertation. I wrote on a modernist Russian poet named Nikolai Zabolotsky. I'm not sorry that I did, because for many years I immersed myself so deeply in words and in poetry, and it was quite a beautiful thing. But even as I was doing that, I was taking notes, you know, about what all the different people in Russian literature were eating and, you know, different scenes. And I took a year off from graduate school to work in the Soviet Union. And it was a very difficult year. It was for an exchange program that was part of the State Department through the U.S. Information Agency. Mm -hmm part of the cultural exchange that had been set up in 1959. And if you ever heard of the great kitchen debates between Nixon and Khrushchev, mm -hmm. those took place in the first exhibit, the American exhibit. So the one I was on was uh, quite interesting for me, American agriculture. So we were talking about agriculture in the States. 
And it was an enormous education for me because it was at a time when there was very little food in the stores in the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, basically it seemed like they were bare. The people knew how to work the system. They knew how to obtain things. And they took great risks to, as you said, bring you all kinds of food so that you could taste what they made mm -hmm. and actually to invite me to their apartments, which in many cases was risky. But there were some bad incidents because, you know, it was the Cold War. And I was kind of ready to throw my graduate experience away and do something entirely different. And I realized that what would save me was this idea of Russian hospitality and how despite politics, despite ugliness, there was this core warmth, there was this beauty and there's this Russian culture. So basically my first cookbook was the uh, dissertation that I was not allowed to write, mm -hmm. um, you know, made accessible uh, without footnotes and everything, but it was all about food and Russian literature. That was how I entered into my subject. And it was about Soviet life. So I got a job right out of graduate school at Williams, arrived here a, a decade later, um, 1983. And two weeks after I arrived, my first book was published. And this is what every you know, young assistant professor wants, you know, get your first publication out, then you're on track to get tenure. But my first publication was this cookbook. It wasn't my dissertation, which I didn't publish for another decade. And they're like, oh my God, you know, who have we hired? <laughs> She's published a cookbook. And in a certain way, didn't quite know what to do with me. Mm -hmm. And I had, um, you know, this very, uh, not quite schizophrenic life, but I was very much in an academic track, publishing very scholarly articles on Russian literature, culture, art. Uh, and then... I had this other track that was my interest in food that I just couldn't let go. And I was publishing in, you know, Gourmet and Sabur mm -hmm. and any place where I could uh, have that outlet. And everything kind of changed in, what was it, 1994, I guess, when my second cookbook, which was uh, The Georgian Feast, yes, mm -hmm. um, the vibrant... Um, what was it called? The vibrant food and the, or the something food and the vibrant culture of the Republic of Georgia. I can't remember the subtitle, but I was really the one who introduced Georgian food too many years too early, you know, before <laughs> it became trendy. And I never made my mint off that, but um, it won the uh, Julia Child Award for Cookbook of the Year from the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And suddenly everyone, you know, you win a major award right. and everyone looks at you a little bit differently. You've been validated. Yeah. I've been validated. So that made things really quite a bit easier for me in that I decided, okay, I'm going to start taking the food that I have kept to the side and integrating it into my academic life. Because I mean, Williams is a great place. And I loved my students, but I wanted to be able to share with them a different way to approach learning, different types of discoveries. 
So I introduced the food, the first food studies course here, which was on Russian culture and cuisine sometime in the late 90s. I can't remember exactly when. And then for the rest of my career, I was teaching both in the Russian department, but also in sociology, where I found a very happy home to teach food and society. So I was able to uh, integrate my interests and it was a very beautiful thing. So tell me about Gastronomica. How did you um, get involved? Oh, so Gastronomica was also an attempt to, <laughs> to uh, I think primarily, or in its very first instance, like how can I bring these two poles of my life together? I published what I still think is one of my most wonderful articles in, um, the Slavonic and East European Review, which comes out of the University of London. And it was on Russia, Karem, you know, the great 19th century French chef and the culinary arts. And in my research, I had found that everyone said that Karem cooked for Tsar Alexander I, you know, during the Napoleonic Wars and that he went to St. Petersburg and cooked for him. So I wanted to find out about that. And in my research, I discovered that in fact, he went to St. Petersburg, the Tsar was not there to meet the great French chef at the dock. And he was so offended that he decided he would not stay. Oh he couldn't get the next boat back for two weeks. So he wandered through St. Petersburg and was very disdainful of what he saw, particularly because here was the capital of an empire and it didn't have all of these monumental structures. Of course, it was built on a swamp. Right. There was a reason that you know, they didn't have these tall phallic things that weighed a gazillion pounds of yeah. granite. No bedrock. <laughs> exactly. But he uh, did an amazing um, portfolio of sketches of designs for monuments for St. Petersburg. And I compared them to his designs for the Pièce Monte, which are the architectural constructions that he became very famous for, but they're made out of sugar paste or marzipan. Mm -hmm. And I actually found the portfolio at, in the rare book uh, collection at Amherst Library, which is you know an hour and a half from here. So I wrote this uh, article as a major find, um, extraordinary to compare this work. And it was everything that I loved. It was Russia, food, and art. Uh -huh. And you know, maybe 50 people read it, and they weren't the 50 people you know, who were absolutely blown away by it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, there has to be a journal. There has to be a place where people like me who are doing things that they're so passionate about making discoveries where other people who are like-minded can find them. So that's why I decided to found Gastronomica, to bridge the academic and the you know, more popular, to bring people together from different disciplines and from different worlds so that they could talk to each other and say, wow, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on and things I'd never thought of. <laughs> it was it was so so wonderful and you were so open because 
really, I was at a point where you and I got to know each other, where I was trying to transition out of just this purely law thing and really wanted, I, I'm so, I'm so sympathetic to the idea of pulling food out because nobody wanted to talk about food law. Everybody was interested in the FDA and all the regulations, but that was mostly drug stuff, you know? Yes, it, it wasn't the sensual stuff or the sensory. It, it, it wasn't the so-called meat of it. That, that's right. Plus the, the people who do food, I mean, I was also interested in them and the certain way that they are. And when I pitch a story to you, you actually listened to me. And I thought, oh, my God, I love this woman. <laughs> so I will never forget that. That was really fabulous. So what are you working on now? Well, actually, I am writing a small, concise, accessible overview or history of Russian food for University of California Press. Mm -hmm. They have a, a new series of what they call little books that are only about 40,000 words mm -hmm. written by experts in, you know, whatever field it happens to be. I think one that just came out is like a field guide to fascism, which was actually very timely if you think about it. But so they asked me to do this book and I thought, how wonderful it can be a kind of companion to Beyond the North Wind. Yes. Actually finding it very challenging to distill over a thousand years of Russian culinary history into 40,000 words. I can imagine, yes. <laughs> because what I like when I do research or when I tell stories, to me what brings things alive are the, the quirky things, almost the kinds of things that belong in footnotes because they're not really germane to the larger picture picture, but they give texture to what you're talking about. Yeah. But when you have um, a small framework, those are the things that you can't lavish attention on. You know, I'm managing to get a few in there, but it has to be a little bit more straightforward. So I'm, you know, I'm making very good progress, but I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> well, that's, that sounds really exciting. And I can see it as a companion piece to be on the North Wind. So thank you so much, Dara, for being with us today. And I encourage everybody to get Beyond the North Wind. You will not be sorry. It's not only a really great cookbook, but it's a great read. There's just lots and lots of fun things to learn in there. And it really reflects, in my opinion, the, the soul and the culture of Russia, as well as the actual food. So thank you so much for writing it, Dara. It's just great. And thank you for your enthusiasm, Liz. I feel like you are my ideal reader. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, Join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.